Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to a new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. Most world religions textbooks follow a structure and conceptual framework that mirrors the modern discourse of world religions as distinct entities, reducible to certain defining characteristics. In his provocative and brilliant new book, Meta-Religion, Religion and Power in World History, Jim Lane, Professor of Religious Studies at McAllister College challenges this dominant paradigm of world religions textbooks by showcasing an approach that instead focuses on the interaction of religion and power across time and space. At once ambitious and lucid, meta-religion narrates the story of the complex intersection of religion and politics in multiple moments, places and traditions. A hallmark of this book is the way it engages the religious and political history of Islam and Muslim societies in conversation with other religious traditions. What emerges from this exercise is a rich and fascinating picture of the complicated and at times conflicting ways in which religiously diverse and plural societies have been managed through particular political arrangements and ideologies in different historical moments. In our conversation, we talked about the idea of meta-religion, different varieties of meta-religion in India, Rome and China, the marginalization of Islam and Muslim history in Euro-American world historical periodizations, meta-religion in Muslim history, Akbar and his experimentation with meta-religion, and meta-religion in the modern and contemporary context. This book will be of great interest to specialists in Islamic studies and other scholars of religion and religious history. It will also make an excellent text for courses on Islam and world history, introduction to religion, and on theories and methods in religious studies. Here now is my conversation with Professor Jim Lane. Hello, Jim. How are you doing? Fine. Thank you. Nice to hear your voice. Uh, well, uh, as I was saying before we went on air, a terrific book, a very comprehensive and uh, an outstanding read. Thoroughly enjoyed it and learned a lot from it and look forward to the uh, conversation. Uh, we have a tradition on new books in Islamic studies that the first question is always a biographical, where we're interested in the a story of our authors, the journey of how they came to write uh, the book that is under discussion. So to begin with this biographical question, uh, how did you become a scholar of religion and what's your story uh, that is behind your being a scholar of religion? Yeah, uh, well, you'll probably laugh at a lot of this. Uh, <laughs> uh, as you know, I'm a pretty old guy uh, and I, uh, my own personal history goes back uh, to the 1960s and um you know, like many people of that generation, I was affected by the by the politics and the culture of that world, and I was probably um, uh, intoxicated <laughs> by many of the Orientalist ideas that we've come to despise. Uh, but anyway, I had very romantic notions about uh, about religion in particular, and maybe religions of the uh, Orient uh, uh, in those days. So that that kind of got me hooked in the beginning. I went to a big state university in Texas, um, 
where there was not uh, a, a religion department or a study of religion. I was I was uh, a student of history, and I think that's returned. Uh, my interest in history returned in this book. Uh, I remember I read uh, William McNeil's Rise of the West as an undergraduate uh, there in Texas, and that still had an impact on me years later. Um, so I got interested in religion, as I said, from a pretty um, romantic point of view. Uh, I didn't go to India, which was my main area of research, until much later, until 1977. Um, and and I, you know, I got a much more realistic uh, view of things, I think, from that trip. My own interests have continued to evolve in terms of my um, sense in which, uh, as an American, uh, our view of religion is is very peculiar in terms of, um, you know, taking all people into account uh, from all times and places. Americans are a very peculiar set in which um, maybe it's our Protestant heritage. Um, religion is so much about uh, ideas and, and beliefs and less about practice and embedded cultural practices and that sort of thing. So um, those things uh, came to me very strongly in India in those early years in the 70s and 80s. And I think that shaped the kind of interest I've had in religion ever since. You write early on in the book that part of the reason why you were prompted to write this book is that you were dissatisfied with the state of uh, textbooks on world religions uh, that you had to teach and so on. So what were the kind of dissatisfactions or problems that you saw in world religions textbooks that prompted you to write this particular book? Um, yeah, uh, several things. Um, primarily the blandness of them, uh, the sense that, uh, again, probably given our American prejudices, that religion is primarily a personal matter, an individual matter, of a, of a person sitting down and thinking, now, what is it that I'm to believe? What is it that I'm going to commit my life to? Here are the uh, options before me on a kind of menu. Uh, maybe I'll dabble a little bit in Zen Buddhism. I'll dabble a little bit in Kabbalah. And uh, I'll dabble a little bit in Sufi mysticism. And then I'll pick something that enriches my life. Um, I, I think a lot of them are written from that point of view to kind of make a pitch to undergraduate students that they can, you know, contemplate these various options as personal um, uh, possibilities. And politics is almost completely left out of these accounts. Uh, the, the idea that religion is, is deeply mixed up with politics is, is seen as kind of inappropriate. And, uh, and so for that reason, I felt it, it gave a very, um, you know, that these books give a very misleading uh, impression of how religion actually works in the world. Uh, and I, I wanted to write something that, that re-engaged uh, major political questions, and that's, that's what I've set about doing. So let's get to the title of the book, which is Meta-Religion, Religion and Power in World History. Um, could you explain a bit what you mean by the term meta-religion and how does this concept relate to the larger theme and argument of the book? Uh, sure. Um, yeah, you know, and I, I may get some flack for uh, for this, but I, I wanted to coin a kind of new term, uh, use this this word in a very specific way uh, to you know clearly articulate what I'm what I'm trying to achieve in the book. Uh, it it began to um, seem to me that in many 
imperial contexts or political contexts in general, you have a setting in which there are multiple religions and someone has to exercise authority over uh, this multiplicity. Uh, and they do so in the name of something that has to stand as an authority over and above the particular religious traditions of those those imperial contexts. And I, I've called that, that something a, a meta-religion or a meta-religious discourse or uh, something along those lines. It's whatever functions to demote any given religion from a position of highest authority. So religions become demoted from being the, the final court of appeal, the, the apex, if you will. And they're demoted by something that often remains rather unstated because it is actually most effective, a meta-religious discourse is most effective when it seems to come from uh, a place of uh, rationality, uh, something that we can take it for granted that uh, all civilized and reasonable people will accept. And therefore, it's best not to uh, articulate it as something um, specific, the product of a particular culture. You know, I, I think in our modern context, we see this happening as people struggle with some of the ideas uh, of French secularism, for example. Um, that operates and is most effective when it seems that it's simply um, what all reasonable civilized people accept, um, rather than it's a product of a certain set of intellectual traditions within a particular culture called France. Um, so I, I don't know if that helps, but that, that's kind of where I'm going at with this is, is how can I find this thing that is, that is, um, fairly, uh, taken for granted, uh, fairly abstract, but then serves as a way of, uh, providing a critique and an authority over all the particular religious traditions of any, uh, single political entity. So the structure of the book is largely chronological, but it straddles multiple geographies and traditions in a rather remarkable way. Uh, so before the, we come to the case of Islam, uh, let's uh, talk a bit about some of your discussions of traditions and movements before the rise of Islam. Uh, so what are some of the models of meta-religion that we find in various traditions and places before the rise of Islam? And I'm especially interested in the interconnections that you draw between rather disparate places such as India, Rome, and China, and between figures such as Ashoka and Alexander. Could you give us a sense of the broader scheme of meta-religion operative in the world before Islam that you discuss in the book? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, well, as you know, I start out with a, with a chapter on Ashoka and uh, Alexander the Great. Um, uh, I did so just because, the, you know, they're their biographies overlap a little bit with Alexander coming to India uh, with the suggestion that the Mauryan Empire in India had contact with Greek thinkers. Um, the fact that um, Ashoka was a viceroy before he became emperor in Taxila, um, uh, you know, up in your neck of the woods there, uh, what would mod be modern-day Pakistan, and, um, uh, and, and would have had a lot of Greek influence in that area. So, my, my sense is that in this period, uh, uh, you know, third century uh, before the Common Era, there were various figures who were beginning to, to imagine a world in which there were, of course, many local and indigenous religious traditions, but they were 
they were governing uh, from a certain position of cosmopolitanism. And that cosmopolitanism was fed by philosophical speculation. Um, and of course, the need to to effectively govern people with with a variety of of cultural backgrounds, um, and and I think uh, in the Greek case and in the Indian case, uh, we can point to language like um, the Greek word logos, um, or in India the the Sanskrit word dharma, or its uh, equivalent in other Indian languages. Um, as signs that people are looking for something which is which transcends the particular. Uh, in the Indian case, you know, I think there was a, a massive intellectual effort over about 400 years to determine who was going to define the word dharma. And with Ashoka's great um, contribution of, of using this word uh, to mean something you know pretty vague but uh but associated with buddhism there was a kind of counterattack on the part of more uh, orthodox brahmin communities in india to uh, reclaim that word and i think all the literature from that sort of 200 bce to 200 ce period uh, in india is is testimony to this massive intellectual effort on the part of uh, more uh Orthodox Brahmins to reclaim that word, um, and we can we can imagine what that was like. We we see you know in our own world uh, people struggling always to see who's going to um, uh, claim the use of a particular word. Um, when I was in in college, for example, the word liberal might have been an okay word to use, but as you probably know, uh, our students today would would uh, not be attracted to such a word. They would prefer the word progressive. Uh, there are these little discursive struggles of who's going to claim this word. Well, in India, you know, this this abstract notion of what's right and true and good um, uh, would have come under the word dharma, and what is it going to be, the Brahmins who are going to claim that or the Buddhists who are going to claim that and what have you. It's very parallel to what was going on in the Greek world with the evolution of the word logos, was that going to be a word that uh, sort of reasonable um, Greek philosophy types were going to claim, um, or what happened when when Christians picked up that word and began to incorporate it into their theologies? So those are a couple of examples. Um, uh, we could go on to China if you want <laughs> as well. I don't know if you have time for that, but uh, I, I think also in China you have some similar kind of abstractions, maybe around the word Tao, uh, the the way of things. Uh, that um, that both Confucian thinkers and and Tao, uh, and later on Buddhist thinkers were going to uh, to struggle with uh, the idea that the, uh, in the nature of things that promotes harmony, uh, and that is, or a governing of Confucian official, I want to make sure that I control that discourse in a way that that will lead to um, to political unity and and avoid factionalism. So those are the those are the beginnings of the kind of story I want to tell, the kind of world history, world historical story I want to tell. Now, in the first section of your book, you make an argument uh, which I found enormously interesting that I want us to uh, discuss a bit here. Uh, you argue that uh, dominant Euro-American 
world historical narratives of late antiquity are periodized in a way that ignores or keeps marginal Islam and Muslim history. And you say that this is the kind of dominant way in which world history is taught in U.S. high schools, for example, and so on. Uh, so could you explain that argument and why you find it important to make in the context of uh, when we think about world religions and uh, questions of world yeah. history? Yeah. Well, I, I hope I'm not uh, hopelessly out of date on this. As I said, I'm kind of an old guy thinking back to my own childhood and looking around. But I, I think it's probably still the case that there's a kind of Hegelian narrative of world history. Um, Hegel, uh, you know, said that the spirit of history uh, uh, kind of moves from east to west. And so uh, the further east you go, the more there will be mention and interest of uh, of any given country. But uh, uh, the, that's dropped pretty early. So I'm thinking back to the way uh, kids will get a kind of basic narrative if they get any narrative at all. But if they have a kind of basic narrative of world history, it sort of starts with um, ancient Mesopotamia, um, then moves to the pyramids, um, and they do a little something on Egypt. Then they move to Greece and then to Rome, uh, and then 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 pretty quickly to uh, England, and then um, and then you know Texas and California. So everything is kind of heading west um, because. From a Euro-American point of view, that that's where the story ends up. You know, we're going to end up with us. So it means that, you know, in the precisely in the period where when um, Islamic uh, empires were at the heart of, you know, world power and wealth and and intellectual life and the rest of it, we're already preparing for European uh, modernity. Um, in our world historical narrative. We're interested in where this ends up in Europe. And the fact that Europe was sort of marginal to the main centers of wealth and power in the world uh, doesn't dent that narrative. And so I've tried to provide a little bit of a corrective here. I, have, I would imagine that in a lot of books that's already done. But, but in a popular sense, I think that's the problem. One way in which the World Religions textbook um, – you know, is still plagued a bit by this world historical discourse, is that, um, you know, there's a, when you treat Christianity, there's an interest in, in early Christianity, and then it moves quickly into Western, um, the Western Roman Catholic tradition, and Eastern Orthodox Christianity is pretty much ignored in most of these books, even though, you know, for a long period, Rome is a ghost town, and Constantinople, what becomes Istanbul, is at the center of, you know, this, this important um, Christian empire and uh, is, is, is where all the money and, and intellectual life is shifted. But that kind of gets left out of the narrative. And, and Islam then becomes a kind of detour from what we see as the main trajectory of, of world history. Um, so in my book, as you know, I, I uh, sort of make the, the center of the book, the middle um, – the middle section of the book, the Islamic millennium from about 700 to 1700 in the Christian calendar um, to, to try and re reorient that narrative. Yes. You spent considerable time in discussing the case of Islam in uh, its historical depth and uh, coming to that now. Uh, so what are some of the salient examples of this concept of meta religion that you're exploring in this book? that you find uh, in Muslim history, whether we talk about early medieval or early modern. And 
I would be curious, how similar or different did you find the case of Islam when it came to the conceptual uh, terrain of this idea of meta-religion that you're exploring in this book uh, in relation to other traditions or movements that you uh, that you have uh, discussed in this book? Yeah. Um, keep in mind, you know, I'm writing this book um, pretty much as a kind of book for undergraduates. Um, you know, so some of the things I, I say may seem, um, you know, uh, and not all that revolutionary. Um, but in general, my sense is that, uh, again, if, if from a textbook point of view, often Islam is treated in a kind of essentialized fashion. You know, let's introduce Islam. Let's talk about the five pillars. Let's talk about, uh, you know, the uh, different styles of Islamic piety. Uh, uh, what What is uh, the Shia tradition? What's the Sunni tradition? Uh, what what does Sufis do, and so on, and it it tends to get back to this more individualist model, kind of Protestant individualist model of what religions like. So, um, with the assumption that you know, kind of the mixing of religion and politics is somehow inappropriate. So, uh, you know, I've challenged that across the board. Uh, religion is always going to be mixed with the politics where it's not mixed with politics. Religion is, uh, moves very quickly toward being a kind of bourgeois hobby. That's uh, uh, irrelevant to our lives. Uh, and I think that model stands behind a lot of the questions about, um, you know, interfaith dialogue and so on. Uh, now with, with respect to these Islamic imperial settings, um, you know, my, Again, I think our model often is, oh, well, this is an Islamic empire, and therefore all these people were Muslims, and what do Muslims do? They follow all these practices that we know about from our textbook versions of Islam. But, in fact, we know that's not true. You know, you go into any historical setting or any contemporary setting, and we know that, you know, most Muslims don't practice all of these things. Um, And... And so do we say, oh, well, those are bad Muslims, and then there are a few good Muslims who are um, uh, hyper-vigilant about following all the appropriate observances of the religious tradition. So given, and and within all these early imperial settings, of course, there was a large percentage of the population that weren't Muslim at all, who continued to follow other religious traditions, Jewish, Christian, uh, Zoroastrian, if that means anything. And then, of course, you get to India, and there are lots of people that we would call Hindu. So I think very early on, in the interest of governing um, effectively, Muslim rulers worked out meta-religious discourses to make sense of things. Now, if if we take the kind of uh, Fred argument seriously, the first step in that process was that our use of the word Islam and our use of the word Muslims today as being the name of a particular religious tradition and the name of the followers of that tradition as though they're sort of card-carrying club members of that tradition is anachronistic and that he uses the you know, book The Believers is a book that makes this argument that Muslims in the early stages, these Arabs who were following this tradition thought of themselves as as believers in a kind of um, in a kind of uh, generalized uh, monotheism uh, without s- clear boundaries between that and other religious traditions that were also monotheist. And that's the kind of basis for later notions of 
people of the book and so forth. But uh, but they were going to govern in the name of that as Arabs, assuming that there were plenty of non-Arabs uh, as part of their empires. So that doesn't need to be fully articulated. Uh, there, there's this movement that's going on. It's an Arab movement. It's a political and military uh, enterprise. Um, they develop their own Arab practices and, uh, you know, the practices we associate with Islam. But there were going to be plenty of other participants in that imperial project uh, who didn't follow that and were not Arabs. So for a couple hundred years, that's there's this kind of meta-religious notions within the, the early Arab communities. Um, I don't know. Moving on to uh, medieval period, uh, I, I'm you know depending on how you use that language. Um, I have a couple of examples in the book of of pretty wild and crazy emperors or sultans who thought of themselves as really beginning to transcend what we would think of as Islam altogether. Uh, you know, you might have noticed I have a couple of examples there of people like uh, um, a Fatimid ruler Al Hakim in the in the late tenth, early eleventh century, and a lot of the Kilji in India. Uh, you know, their ambitions as rulers was to to govern over uh, these societies with lots of diversity within them, and they began to assume their own authority as religious as well as as military and political leaders um, and the claims they make would strike us today as, as um, heretical in the most <laughs> profound way, you know, uh, uh, there's stories of a lot of the Nkilji, you know, claiming that he was going to come up with a new revelation and he was going to be a new prophet and he was going to start a new, new sort of religion or cult. I, I think he used the word, uh, so I don't know how we want to translate that. But, you know, today that would be just so shocking to people. But th- he's in this position of great uh, political authority, and he kind of wants to be a great religious authority as well. And I think that's the beginning of something that we'll see more of um, in the in the early modern period as well. Uh, were we going to go on to early modern periods? I think as you, you wish, want, up to you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, well, you know, we'll we'll talk maybe a little more about that. But if you get into the early modern period, the, the gunpowder empires and so on, the Ottomans, uh, Safavids, uh, Mughals in India, you see again uh, uh, people ruling in the name. You know, who are they were Muslim rulers, but they began to cultivate ideologies that. Um, that really transcend Islam as we normally think of it. They begin to claim a kind of authority for the for the king that rests on other other bases. Um, we may say more about the Mughals in a minute or two, but um, the Mughal ideology was one of of a kind of uh, royal uh, notions that were derived from pre-Islamic sources. Um, uh, claimed a kind of universal authority as though these kings literally glowed with a kind of halo that would be um, recognizable to to the the properly initiated folk. Uh, the Ottomans did the same thing. They saw themselves as the 
successors of long lineages that go way back uh, pre-Islamic times um, and so forth. So in these settings, these kings are going to rule multi-religious um, uh, societies and cultures, and they're going to claim for themselves a kind of religious authority that transcends the, the, the definitions of Islam. They're not simply ruling in the name of Islam. Uh, I had one example in there that I thought was kind of a fun one was, uh, you know, one of these uh, Yanisaries who rises to the position of prime minister, if you will, um, in the Ottoman Empire. But he's, he's, you know, he comes from the Balkans. He comes from Serbia. Uh, and then he's initiated into this Yanisari core in the Ottoman Empire and becomes prime minister. And after that fact, he continues to communicate with his brother who back in in Belgrade or somewhere is uh, serving as the, the Orthodox uh, archbishop and they write each other and using Serbian language, you know? So, you know, it was a cosmopolitan world that assumed this kind of um, this religious diversity to claim authority over that. You couldn't simply do it from, from a narrow religious perspective. Now you discuss a number of uh, key scholars and political leaders, but Let's focus on one example that I found particularly fascinating, and uh, the discussion is quite extensive in your book also, on uh, Akbar, Jalaluddin Akbar, uh, in India, in Mughal India. Uh, and you talk extensively about his views and his policies regarding religion. And you try to complicate this modern notion or the projection that Akbar was either a nationalist or that he was uh, a tolerant inclusivist and so on. So what are some of the complexities involved in uh, assessing Akbar's experimentation with meta-religion. Uh, could you talk a bit about that discussion from your book? Uh, sure. Um, you know, I, I think for uh, for people who may be listening to this uh, um, little program uh, who know, you know a lot about Islam and so on, I, I think it's important to say that probably, you know, our fascination with Akbar um, is a little bit... Um, is a little bit biased by certain assumptions. And we've seen in recent scholarship, I'm thinking I've been reading lately since, since finishing this book, I've been reading a lot of uh, Rajiv Kindra's uh, work. Uh, and I, I find it very persuasive that Akbar may not have been quite as uh, unique an individual within the, the Mughal um, setting as, as he's often made out to be. He's made a kind of, he's been turned into a kind of hero for a certain kind of, uh, which you've called tolerant inclusivism, um, and, and I, I may be guilty a little bit of that of myself in the book. But um, I wanted to take Akbar as an example uh, of a person that we we in the modern world um, might admire uh, because he tried to develop a ruling ideology in which he did not, um, according to this narrative, discriminate against um other religious communities in his realm and that he ruled India, uh, which was a majority Hindu population. Uh, he ruled it with an even hand. Um, and he, he, um, uh, was effective as a ruler precisely because he wanted to draw upon the talents of Hindus and Muslims alike. And he didn't want to uh, claim a kind of superiority for Muslims in that context. You know, the more I read about his, his uh, practices, it became clear that he, all of his um, his policies, 
his methods for government come from the desire to amass power. Uh, there's no question about that. Maybe they were enlightened policies, and maybe they were effective because they were enlightened, but uh, he certainly wouldn't have entertained them if they did not um, improve his own claims upon power. So, for example, his his cultivation of Rajput warriors and his marriage to Rajput princesses uh, was the cultivation of Hindu allies in Rajasthan. Uh, but that also was an important balance uh, to challenges he might have received from Afghan uh, nobles at, at court and so on. So clearly he had a kind of universalism that was all-encompassing, but it was a way of of him elevating his own royal person to an almost divine status um, that was important for for his his claims on power. Uh, as I said, a lot of scholarship now is saying that, um, you know, our, our attempt to kind of single him out is probably misplaced, that, uh, that to some extent the Mughals um, from Akbar on need to use many of the same um, ideas and continue to employ and make use of people who are outside of the Muslim circles um, in their in their governing practices. So, um He's a fascinating character. Uh, I, you know, I, you may want to have a follow-up question, but one of the things is to think in generally across the Islamic world in the 16th or 17th century, um, what was the place of um, Sufism in a kind of Persianate view of royal charisma? And what did that mean in that period? I, I don't know if you want to go there, but that would be something we can also consider. Yes, why don't you continue on that on that on that uh, on that note? Um, I mean, if you look across the world in in the early modern period, if you're talking about uh, uh, any of the contemporaries of Akbar, it's kind of striking. Uh, talk a little bit about uh, somebody like Henri the Fourth um, in France. Um, and Henry VIII, better known in England, of course. Um, you know, to put it in shorthand, there were a lot of rulers who wanted to be pope as well as king. They wanted to have a absolute religious authority. They wanted to have absolute political authority. In the Islamic world, there's often the sense that, you know, a ruler sought out the added charisma that could um, legitimate his rule by seeking the blessings of a, of a Muslim saint. Um, and, and, uh, it's a kind of ironic thing that, you know, a saint is supposed to be otherworldly figure and the degree to which that saint is removed or detached from direct political circumstances is the degree to which that person has actual, influence upon the political, you know, so they, it's, a, it's a kind of ironic relationship. Um, you know, so in the Safavid Persian Empire um, and in the Mughal Empire, to a less extent in the Ottoman Empire, but they're, they're, that's its own special case, um, you know, the, the kind of charisma that a, that a Sufi saint exercised um, 
was important for the for the ruling class. The Safavids begin as a really as a Sufi order with a kind of charismatic peer at the head of that order who becomes becomes the emperor. And Akbar begins his reign, you know, really, you know, that he has a kind of special thing from the Chishti order in India. He then evolves something in which he becomes himself kind of a, a sheikh or kind of a peer. Uh, his own, uh, you know, ideology of the Deen Ilahi was really kind of a little cult of a special worship in which he was veered as a semi-divine figure. Um, now, a lot of that is is alien to us today. We we find it a little uh, unusual, but it's it's very important for realizing that religion is um, made. It's always going to be marshaled in the interests of claiming authority and legitimacy. Um, and where it's not, where it becomes a purely private notion as in the you know bourgeois late capitalist world that we find ourselves in is is a point at which um something else is going to have to step in uh to take that role that religion in most societies has has always had so let's move towards the the final section of the book uh, and i was wondering if you could speak a bit about the the important shifts that you see in the narrative of meta-religion that you weave throughout your book uh, in early modern and modern conditions. And you also have, of course, a section on the contemporary conditions and context. But where do you see the most important continuities and disjunctures uh, between the first you know, two sections of your book and the final sections on the modern and contemporary context and conditions where you come back to those very places such as India, Rome, China, and so on. But broadly speaking, could you speak a bit about the underlying or uh, uh, the, the, the primary uh, continuities and ruptures that you find uh, in meta-religion? Yeah, uh, that's, that's a tough question. If you had a really smart guy writing this book, he could probably give you a really good answer. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, I think the main thing I was, um, you know, my first concern was to seek continuities because I think we assume that there's a kind of clear break that occurs that makes pop makes possible uh, secularism, right? And we have this sort of category of secularism, and we think, oh, that's what modern people have, and it's something kind of new and different, and it puts religion into this very different space. And of course, with a lot of of important scholars, you know, we've come to see that secularism is not this simple um, new uh, product of a progressive, rational, scientific thought that's displaced, you know, that which was um, superstitious and so forth, and and now is the basis for a kind of um, fair and neutral adjudication and uh, of different groups, and and the basis for a kind of um, cool rationality, right? Um, so so I, I'm challenging that and saying no, you know, people always in have have tried to work their way towards something that is um, is more encompassing, and I've called that thing meta religion. And modern secularism is just another version of that. Right. So that's where the continuity is that we use 
those kind of ideologies precisely as Akbar or Ashoka or somebody else would have done. The difference is that the 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 use of meta-religious discourse in the um, in more ancient times still assumed that most people were governed by um, religious practices and ideas that were deeply ingrained in their culture, um, that their lives were enriched by, you know, a profound encounter with, with symbols that, that were, were full of meaning for folks. Um, and that in the modern world, we have plenty of people uh, who do not have that uh, level of engagement. You know, if you think about, I, I don't know if you've read the book, uh, Charles Taylor, A Secular Age, and he kind of traces this kind of impoverishment of the symbol systems that most people live with. And, you know, a lot of people have, have kind of lamented the, the capitalist world is a world of disenchantment. Uh, there's not this richness. So in the modern context, the the use of meta-religion is one that, that in the same way stands in as kind of the highest form of, of truth, but it's governing over cultures and societies in which um, that kind of um, – the individual religions that it's governing over no longer have the same kind of claim on people's lives uh, that they would have had in other contexts. Of course, you know, in modern Western Europe, um, that kind of world of disenchantment is now coming up against um, uh, immigrant and minority communities, many of whom are Muslim, um, who may still participate in a more enchanted world than their European neighbors. And that leads to this kind of um, talking past one another to where the European doesn't understand that um, it may not be so easy for these new arrivals to simply uh, treat their religion very lightly um, as a, as a kind of minor um, uh, interest and, and kind of casual hobby the way, Europeans have been able to do with their own Christianity um, or Americans do with their Christianity for Europeans. Maybe that story is almost completely over. So that, that would be, uh, you know, one place where I think that the modern world maybe is a little bit different, but I, I, I tend to want to emphasize the degree to which there's greater continuity than, than, than a break or a rupture in continuity, uh, because I think it's been so assumed that that, that, that rupture is, is uh, so profound that it puts us in a, a very distinctive and unique place that we may not actually be in. So to sum up uh, our conversation on this book, uh, so what are some of the key conclusions on the relationship between religion and power? That is a central conceptual theme of this book, uh, to push us to think about the relationship between religion and politics, religion and power. So what are some of the major conceptual conclusions that you wish to make through this book uh, on this particular question of the relationship between religion and power. Right. Well, you know, as I said, uh, you know, if you're a human being and you're trying to live in a world, uh, find meaning and purpose, you're going to look for things that are true and authoritative. And when you find those things, then you're going to want to govern according to those principles. So, you know, the kind of 
assumption that there should be this separation of church and state or between the sacred and the secular and so on can only begin to happen for people once their assumption is that um, that religion no longer gives us access to that authority and that there's something else that's replaced it that is more authoritative and more um, more reliable as the basis for uh, uh, for politics. Um, and w- with that assumption, then we look back into the past historically and we get rather puzzling that people um, had these uh, funny, outmoded notions that they should govern according to Muslim principles or Christian principles, or, or, uh, or so. You know, my, my main emphasis is that, of course, people wanted to govern according to principles that they thought were. Um, and when religion ceases to provide that, or doesn't seem to be able to provide that, they're going to move to an even higher level. And that higher level is these abstract notions of meta-religion. Those things can't replace the sort of quotidian aspects of religion that uh, that are deeply ingrained in my cultural practices and even in my bodily practices. Um, you know, I um, I'm still going to have those things as kind of anchors to my my daily life. Um, but when it seems that religion no longer performs those functions, it means that something else has stepped into that to that role. So, you know, maybe Americans or Western Europeans need to critically look at the degree to which they are religious about what they think of as non-religious values. So they they have a, such a deep commitment to words like democracy or freedom or even ideas like individualism, that those things no longer come in for debate. They're just so taken for granted, so assumed, so normative, that um, that they're the bedrock for analyzing everything else. And if you don't accept those values that they hold so dearly, it's not that we have a differing theology from the person who critiques them. It's that... Um, the person has removed themselves from basic civilized discourse, and therefore we see the person as a barbarian. Um, so that that's really what I want to do is bring back the kind of assumption that religion obviously is going to be engaged in questions of religious uh, political power, uh, and when we when we exile it from that, we're assuming a kind of new modern notion that religion necessarily needs to be simply a private uh, sort of hobby uh, for individuals um, and that people who haven't seen that truth or are, are somehow uh, beneath us or um, uh, ignorant of, of, of the way things ought to be. Um, and so, you know, we let's look critically at the way in which our language of the United Nations or uh the uh, what is it the uh, you know our kind of language of human rights and our language of a, that are that all this kind of discourse is deeply religious in the sense that people are committed to it and in the way that people are committed to things that are now beyond argument. So as we're approaching the end of our time here, uh, Jim, could you share with us a bit about things that you're working on these days and uh, what are some of the 
uh, things that we can expect to read from you and learn from you in the coming months and years? <laughs> you shouldn't have caught me so close to retirement age. Uh, but uh, no, I, I'm, uh, you know, I haven't, I haven't worked up a, new, a big new project yet. I'm still kind of spinning out a few ideas that have come from this. Uh, I am going to kind of circle back to, uh, to Akbar. I want to, I want to look at Akbar and maybe the Mughal period in India um, again. I'm uh, very interested in in that. I have a couple of um, papers I'm working on from that. Um, beyond that, I'm not sure. You know, I I spent about ten years on this on this project, um, off and on, obviously, but uh, it's been about ten years since my last book. And, uh, you know, it led me to think much more broadly about the study of religion than I'd ever done before. Every, before that, everything I did was, you know, uh, very much India-related. Uh, um, so those are some things that I'm, uh, you know, that, that took me a long time to develop that, and it'll take me a, uh, probably some more time before I take on a new major project. Uh, but it's been great talking with you, uh, and thanks for your interest. So, Meta Religion, Religion and Power in World History, published in 2014 by the University of California Press in Berkeley. Uh, thank you so much, Jim, for this conversation and for this wonderful book. Learned so much from it. Uh, for anyone interested in religion, this really is a must read. Uh, everything that you would need to know from Alexander to Barack Obama is in this book. So, it's quite a, uh, quite a thrilling uh, intellectual journey reading this book. So, uh, pleasure reading it and pleasure talking to you. And thank you so much for your time. It was my pleasure. Thank you. So this was my conversation with Jim Lane on his new book, Meta Religion, Religion and Power in World History, published by the University of California Press in 2015. Hope you enjoyed the conversation. Please also join us next time for another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Be well and take care. <laughs>